Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach, and this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, gain awareness around mental health and spirituality, and own your right to have a dream and take up space. It's really a show to help you find enough self-love and courage to go after the things you want. So I'm wondering... Have you ever held yourself back from what you want because you're too scared to stray away from the dream you've told everyone that you have? It's a lot of pressure to do the thing you've always wanted to do, but sometimes it can be even harder to change your mind. Today's guest is a comedy writer, host, podcaster, and producer who talks about how his goals have changed since childhood and why he aims for creative joy in the entertainment industry above all else. But before we get to that, I'm going to do a quick creative check-in. Now, this is something I haven't done at the beginning of the show for a really long time. It was something for the first about year and a half of the podcast that I did weekly before the show started. And a creative check-in is basically just a moment where I go through something that's happened in my life in the past week, how it's hit me and affected my creative journey, and how it may affect yours. So today's creative check-in has to do with updates. And the thesis statement of this check-in is, Do not wait until something is broken in your life to update it. This came about because, well, my computer is currently deciding her own fate. Today, randomly, must have been a stroke of Mercury retrograde meets just weirdness. Both of my computers, I have a work computer and a regular computer, both just chose to crap out at the same exact time. So I called Apple. I spoke to a wonderful woman, which, by the way, just shows how much customer service really can change your life because she really walked me through it in such a kind and warm way. So shout out to her and to Apple support. But basically, this is happening because I did not update my computer ever. I mean, not just recently. Like, I've never updated my computer once. I've had it since 2017. It's on the same operating system it came with. And so it just had enough. And it was like, you know what? I'm done. And I just thought it was such a great metaphor because, you know, I had to basically delete everything on my computer and then try to update it with the new processing. Um, I don't even know if that's what it's called. (laughs) The new operating system. But it just was a metaphor for me for my life because I think so often in life, in our journeys, we wait until something or someone, mostly us, is completely broken before we change anything or update our own operating systems, right? Like we'll wait until we're sick to leave a job we don't like, or we'll wait until our relationship is hanging on by a thread before we go to counseling, or we'll wait until we're really depressed before we will make a change or go travel. And this was just a reminder for me that if something is already showing that it's ailing, It absolutely needs fixing right then and there. But before it even gets to that place, update your way of thinking. Because just because you reached one level, like I had a beautiful brand new computer in 2017. It's now four years later. It needed some updating between then and now. It didn't get it. And therefore, this is happening. Just because you have something that's good in your life doesn't mean that it's promised. And if you don't continue to work on it and to upgrade it and to update it and to delve into how you can make it even better or how you can get closer toward yourself or your goal, that thing is not promised to stay in your life. And your dreams aren't promised if you don't continually upgrade and update yourself and really ask, what do I want? What could make this an upgrade for me? So again, 
update your computer, that is for sure. But also look around your whole life and ask, where are systems, processes, parts of my life that I could upgrade that could use a little love and attention? And how can I do it now versus waiting until it's actually broken to do so? And hopefully you won't have to look at a dark screen wondering whether your computer or whatever the thing in in your life that you're trying to upgrade is going to work. (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to let you know I am actually doing a live music show. I'm so excited at Bar Lubitsch, which is in West Hollywood on Santa Monica Boulevard on Tuesday, June 29th at 8.30 p.m. So definitely come check it out. I'm going to be playing all new songs. My shows are kind of like a hybrid between the podcast and a concert. I'd love to meet you. I cannot wait to play. I literally cried when I booked the show. And it's going to be so much fun. I'd love to meet you and talk with you and come out and we will chat and catch up. Okay, now to the guest. His name is Christian Blatt. He's best known for hosting the Blackcast, for writing and co-hosting the Dennis Miller Show and the Dennis Miller Option, executive producing and hosting at AfterBuzz TV and the Tomorrow Show, which is where we actually met. He's a ridiculously talented comedy writer, an incredible friend, and one of the most genuine human beings I know. I respect him and love him very much. I wanted to have Christian on the show because he's such a balanced person who can speak to what it means to realistically go for your dreams and stay true to who you are. In this episode, we talk about going with the flow of your career and allowing your dreams to change with you, persevering and exposing your weird side and how that can actually help you in entertainment, as well as why it can be great to choose projects to work on that serve you in joy and fulfillment rather than money alone. Now here he is, my dear friend, Christian Blatt. Well, Christian, I'm so happy you're finally on the show. This is a long time coming. The reason that you and I originally connected, obviously we worked together on the Tomorrow Show back in the day, but the minute I knew you would be my friend for life was a late night. We were... Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I know what you're going to say. Yeah, We were recording this promo for the Tomorrow Show to you know tell people it's coming. And we were just like all slap happy. It was like three in the morning. It was too late. Yeah. And there was this, what, what was it like a leaf blower? What was that? Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a piece of equipment in the van. And I think we were just filming the show opening, but you're right. Part of that was filming a promo and in, in hindsight to think back, which by the way, was five years ago to think back. That's wild. It feels like both too long and yeah. too short. Yeah. It was either 20 years ago or 20 seconds ago. <laughs> And there was a piece of equipment. There's a lot of downtime and uh, something caught your eye, didn't it? It sure did. Yeah. And that thing, whatever it was, it looked like a leaf blower to me. Yeah. But the product had the word husky on it. The brand was husky. (laughs) And suddenly, with no explanation, (laughs) I just look straight ahead with a dead look in my eyes and go, husky. Husky. And it was an intuitive thing. It wasn't like I planned out, like, I'm going to say husky. It just happened. Yeah. And you looked at me. And what did you do? I I, I laughed because (laughs) it was so funny. And then uh, for five years since, I've called you husky. And sometimes people think that's a a very cruel nickname, but uh, it is a very strong term of endearment that I call you husky because it... uh, it's uh, memories of our, our early days in the trenches together, just how delirious we were and how silly it was that uh, 
Husky. Husky. You know, there's always a distinct moment for me when I realize somebody's a kindred spirit or that they're a weirdo too and that I'm safe to be my full weirdo self. And that is one of the clearest of those times in my life and one that I'm most grateful for because from that day forward, I'm like, oh, I'm always safe with this person to be exactly who I am. Yeah. And I think that especially when you work in any level of entertainment, it's uh, always hard to find those people where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I can be me because you know, we all feel that we're probably a lot weirder than we actually are. And, you know, everybody's kind of somewhere in the middle, you know, and sometimes you have to put up this artificial presentation of, well, this is what I'm really like. And, uh, you know, depending on what you're trying to do career-wise, that could help. You know, if you're going to be a news anchor and read from a teleprompter, that's probably what you should be working on professionally. But if you're doing any kind of show where you have a conversation like this one, especially where you're talking about the real people behind the creativity, you just, you need to be able to be you. And I feel like for the most part, the people who do the best are the ones who are able to share that personality and you actually get to, to know them, you know, and it's not just like, oh, this person looks a certain way. So they will be a good fit for this kind of show or this sort of entertainment. Was there a time in your career where you felt like you had to put up like that presentational version of Christian? And like, if so, how did you deal with that or break out of it? Or were you ever able to? I think when I was, it was very early when I was an intern, I interned at NBC in New York. I interned my senior year. I interned the whole year in the fall semester. I interned for late night with Conan O'Brien, which was his 1230 show, 1130 central. (laughs) Uh, And the second semester I interned at Saturday Night Live. So I think that you walk into those situations thinking you need to be a certain way, but then you kind of realize that the people that work at places like that are actually pretty laid back. And for the most part, they're very nice and you could be yourself. When I was a page at NBC, that's a little bit more buttoned down, you know? And mm. So Christian, for those that don't know, what is an NBC page? An NBC page is basically somebody that's usually right out of college and you get an entry level job where the primary reason you have them is to give tours of the studios and you wear these really sharp little blazers with a little peacock tie. And the trade-off is that you then get assignments on shows within NBC. So for like 10 weeks, you would sit at the desk in front of the studio for Conan O'Brien or SNL. People would have assignments up in executive offices uh, or they would have assignments in the sports department, in the news department. So it's like being a TV apprentice on whatever area of expertise you're most interested in. A lot of people know what that job is because there was a character on 30 Rock called Kenneth and he was an NBC page. So once that show started, I could tell people, oh, I used to be an NBC page. By the time they did 30 Rock, they actually didn't wear those uniforms anymore. But Tina Fey knew that those uniforms were actually very funny. So that's why she had him wear one. In any case, uh, so that was like a little bit more corporate because you were dressed a certain way. You had a name tag, you know, you were supposed to answer to people. And then I think that that might be the only time for the most part, certainly in terms of anything that I would do in front of the camera, in front of the microphone, I think I was always fairly comfortable being myself because by the time I got those opportunities, I started to realize I'm only here because of the bits of personality and the what other people have characterized as as quick thinking and fast timing comedically so other people thought that i did a good enough job with that stuff so i must have been doing something right so i'm just going to kind of go with it you know 
Yeah. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that too because I remember when I was interning at the Ellen Show, like I was so scared somebody was going to find out I was an actress and think I was flighty and then judge me and like not give me another opportunity. But I'm like, I did realize after that I need to be honest wherever I go because people are going to find out. And second, like sometimes they can find out and help you. So I think that that was a good learning and why now when I work with someone, I always ask them what their dream is because even if it's not like what, I'm hiring them for or what I'm working with them for, maybe I could help them down the line and they're ultimately going to do a better job for me if I see them fully. However, not everybody acts that way, especially, you know, there can be people in entertainment who are very ego driven and scared that you're going to like try to take their spot. And so I'm curious because like you've spent so much of your career working with Dennis Miller and like in and a lot of different big names and like, you know, like being their their go to person. And I have two as a producer and it's a tough line to walk. Like how, how do you know when you're in those kind of situations, how much of yourself to bring and when to stand back? Well, I think it's a lot easier when you're dealing with comedy and comedians, you know, because even when things are serious, they're not as serious as they might be otherwise, you know, you know, I mean, I did a a radio show with Dennis Miller for eight years he would do it out of his house, his house up in Santa Barbara. The rest of us were in Los Angeles. So there would be tech problems. And like the tech problems were the time. It's like, okay, nobody can have fun right now. Yeah. Like even if we're not the ones who can fix it, we still, we don't get to enjoy it. You know, it just depends on that person. Mm-hmm. And some people that, uh, you know, I've talked to people who've worked for other people and it's like, it, it seems like it's, it can be pretty stressful. I mean, I've heard like third-hand stories of uh, someone who once upon a time was Mariah Carey's assistant. Sounds like a delightful job. (laughs) Yeah. The part of the story that I'll tell is that she would have to drive to Mariah Carey's house, wake her up, and then go back to her house and then not come over again for a couple hours because Mimi needed a little her time. But uh, she couldn't wake up by an alarm clock. She needed a person to wake her up. Wow. You know, so, and sometimes those kind of jobs do have the perks and that's why people will stay with them. And honestly, starting a new job is always like, this is how I'm used to doing things. I wonder how that's going to fit with this new setting, you know? Right. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with reading a room, you know? Do you have any tips for that for people or is it just a gut thing? I think it's just a gut thing. The good thing about a room is if there's a few people in it. So like, The example you used earlier about starting out at the Tomorrow Show, you knew a lot of those people. I didn't really know anybody, you know? I mean, that wasn't the first night we'd all met, but I really didn't know a lot of those people. And so when you find, it's almost like summer camp. When you find somebody that you can latch onto, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. So, so we're going to, we're going to be buddies. You know, we're going to do the archery together. We're going to do the the swimming contest together, the pie eating contest. And I feel like you and I would have done the pie eating contest together, by the way. Oh Yeah. And by the way, as soon as this pandemic is over, if we don't do that, so sue me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Going back to the whole thing, though, of like producing for someone, I was always curious, like, what did you want to be growing up? Did you have performance dreams? Like, what was your ambition as a child and then like as a young adult? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, it would have been good if my ambition had been to post after show videos on YouTube and not get paid for them because uh, that's where I'm largely at these days. But the interesting thing, and I use this as an example, whenever anybody's made the mistake to let me speak to like a, a college class or something, I'll usually talk about how important it is to really manage what your goals are and how they should 
be able to be changed a little bit. I'm not saying, you know, give up on your dreams, but just realize what it is that you want. So uh, when I was in middle school and really into eh, probably all the way through into college, I thought, oh, I know I want to be Dennis Miller. I want to be doing the news on Saturday Night Live. And then he had an HBO show. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you start to realize like, oh, that's not really that easy to, to get to do that. But what I wanted to do was work for him. And then I ended up getting to write with him or for him. I occasionally wrote with him, but let's be honest, I wrote for him. Uh, and sometimes he liked the joke and other times didn't. And then I got to co-host a radio show with him and a podcast for three years. So, and that's like, well, I didn't think of it that way. So you, you know, when you're like 14, you don't think, oh, I want to be a joke writer. You know, you don't quite know what that is. Right. You know, when I found out what an internship was, I'm like, oh, that sounds like fun to kind of work on a TV show while you're still in school. So I definitely wanted to perform. I uh, annoyingly did improv comedy in college, which uh, I should apologize to everyone for making them come to see. <laughs> but uh, we had fun. My passion was trying to be funny. And what has always been sort of easy uh, to like connect the dots is look through the news and go like, oh, okay, this is probably what's funny about that story. And then, oh, here's what's funny about that story. And write sort of jokes that don't have a good shelf life, which is probably why I wasn't a particularly effective stand-up comedian in New York, which was 21, 22 years ago now at this point. You know, getting to work with Dennis Miller on his radio show, the goal wasn't, well, I'm going to get to become the co-host. You know, it was just, I, I ended up producing it. And then the the person who had been a co-host left the show after a couple of years. And then he just started talking to me more. And I was like, oh, okay, so this this works. And then when he would be on vacation, I would guest host. And then I started, you know, because I had started doing my own podcast, The Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Thank you. That's right. I started doing that in 2013. So I, by doing that, I felt comfortable, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I've done a podcast for a few hundred people. Why can't I go on a nationally syndicated radio show and talk to a few million people? What's the difference? But, you know, it's just, you have these little steps along the way that make you feel like, oh, okay. Yeah. I feel like I could probably do that. You know? Do you believe in manifesting? Never on the first date. <laughs> you are a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> but third date, sure. Um, I, and I actually, I have to, just, I want to be sure I understand what you mean by that. So is that one of those, like you sort of do the vision board, like, oh, I want this job or I want this thing or. Well, yeah. Like to me, it seems you manifested working with Dennis Miller. You said, I want to be Dennis Miller. Then you thought I want to work for Dennis Miller. You end up working for Dennis Miller and with Dennis Miller. Do you believe that there was some part of this like intense wanting and visualization that aided you in having that opportunity? Like how did it even come about? Well, it's a good question because it hinges from the fact that, as I mentioned, I had been an NBC page. Uh, so I was an NBC page in New York. And then when I moved out to Los Angeles, I would be on this sort of alumni list of NBC pages. And there was an Excel spreadsheet and you would just look who other alumni were and what shows they worked on. So at that time, Dennis had been doing a show on CNBC. He'd been doing it for a couple months by the time I met with them. And so I just I just wrote to them because I was not working consistently out here and uh, I had a ooh, I had a job on a, a reality show that was about people running for president. This was 2004. Wow. And uh yeah, it was uh it was by somebody who has done very well in the documentary world, but 
No one remembers this show. I never saw it. I have no idea how it turned out, but the idea was awful. <laughs> it was called American Candidate. But anyway, so I was doing these other shows and, you know, this was not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to, you know, have a paycheck. And so I wrote to a couple of the producers on Dennis's CNBC show. And I was like, oh, I was a page in uh, New York. And I actually watched the show because I liked Dennis. So I was like, oh, you know, I like the show, blah, blah, blah. So they uh, had me come in. I talked to them and they didn't have anything. It was more, it was a little bit more informational. But then when they had a, a spot open up for an office PA, production assistant, I immediately jumped at that chance. And uh, I said, so long to American Candidate. I, I said, no more years, no <laughs> more years. And uh, so I started working as a production assistant. And, you know, look, when you're a production assistant on a TV show or, or in radio, a lot of times you're younger than I was. I was 28. I'd worked a lot before I moved to L.A. And so but it was like, yeah, great. I will just jump at this opportunity to be a production assistant. And within a couple of weeks, you know, I, I talked to a great guy named Jim Hanna, who was the head writer on that show. And uh, he was like, oh, you know, if you have jokes, you can give them to me. And I would, so I would give him a few jokes. I'd give him like, I don't know, five jokes. And he would pick a couple and they would go into this huge packet that Dennis would get, which had to be faxed to him because this is 2004. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And he would read it. And so he'd circle the ones he liked and then he'd call, you'd say hello. And he would just go like two, seven nine, 18, 54, you know, and it was, it was almost like calling plays as a quarterback. He was just give the joke numbers. And he's like, bye-bye. You know, that was it. That was the conversation. So I wrote jokes that I gave to this guy, Jim Hanna, and he would include them in the, this packet. And this is not the way everything always worked in comedy. Dennis wanted all the jokes just numbered. He didn't care who wrote them. Nobody's name went on the top. He just picked the jokes that he thought were the funniest. So I got a few jokes on that way. And so some of the other writers no, you got to know them. They started writing me into bits uh, on camera, which I still have oh. uh, in some very interesting uh, costumes, uh, including a monkey suit, uh, ladies lingerie. I was an astronaut. That's when I really showed my range as an actor. But <laughs> Dennis loved the fact that I would do these parts and I was not particularly good, but I was still dedicated to them. You know, I wasn't like, I didn't approach them as an actor. I was just like, I'm just going to give this a line read or whatever. And I had this recurring character where I wore this awful long hair wig and I was supposed to be his uh, no good teenage son, Dak. D-A-C-K was his character's name. And uh, that definitely helped me stand out because I would just, it was just a lot of like, forget it. You don't get it. You know, it was just this like really one note character, but that was the point. So I went from being a, an office PA to being his assistant on the show. And it was really on the basis of being a terrible actor. But the fact that I made up my mind very early on. If I was asked to do something on camera, I would always say yes. Cause I never would say no, because at the very least I would get out of it is my mom would be able to see me on TV that night. Yeah. You know, that was kind of the way that she'd know I was okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh yeah, I'll be on TV tonight. So it's like, Oh great. Obviously. It was a text message of 2004. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Text messages were 10 cents. I didn't have text. <laughs> Texting wasn't included in your plans in 2004. No, there was no unlimited. No, there wasn't. So uh, yeah. So just working on that show, it was because I had been a page at NBC and you know, like when I was in New York, obviously the more immediate goals were I really wanted to try and work on late night with Conan O'Brien or on Saturday night live, which had kind of become, you know, a little bit of a, 
of a goal. I would have loved to have worked on it in any capacity. And honestly, even in recent years, I've still submitted writer packets because that's always something that would be pretty amazing. Even though I live in Los Angeles, that's one of those things that if I ever, yeah, if I ever got a job on that show as a writer, my wife and I, we've talked about it. We'd figure it out, you know? Yeah, no, you would be amazing at it because of what you were saying about how you approach stand-up comedy. I mean, the whole show is pretty much topical. So it's literally perfect for your sensibility. Well, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to give you Lauren Michael's number and I do have it. You get one of his three assistants and you should explain to them why they need to hire me for the rest of the season. And uh, I'll start working there on Saturday. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Lauren, it's Lauren LaGrasso. Yeah, I know you don't know me. You're going to love me though. Just wait. <laughs> Well, I love this story for so many reasons, and there's a million things I want to break down from it. But one, and I know we both know that 28 is like the youngest age we've ever heard of in our lives. But when you're 28, you don't feel young. No, it's true. When I was 28, I felt like I'm over the hill. My life is over. Well, that's that's actually what I meant. Like production assistants were always right out of college. Right. So 28 feels old if that's your job. Once I was Dennis's assistant, then I'm like, well, I'm 29. So obviously <laughs> I should be someone's assistant. Moving on up, baby. But for anyone who's listening who is 28 or even younger or even older and feeling like it's too late for me to reinvent myself, it's too late for me to put myself out there. Like, what would be your advice on just how to get the fuck over it and go toward what they want and like not be too proud? Because look at that put your life on a totally different track. If you had said like, no, I'm too old for this. I can't start over. I don't want to start in this smaller job. You wouldn't have gone down this track that's led you to all these cool things. Yeah. What would be your advice for that kind of person? I, I think you have to you have to be prepared to be disappointed at every turn, but you also have to realize, you know, it's easier to visualize in entertainment, but in all honesty, this could be in finance, this could be in government. You could realize that, yeah, I'm 28 or I'm 38. I'm going to go and, and get like 10 coffees from Starbucks, you know, which is probably a lot easier now because you can just do it all on the app and just pick it up. But whatever, whatever the, the, the low level jobs are that people are like, yeah, this is probably beneath me in some level. It's not beneath you because of the level you're at. And when people see that you do these little jobs and you do them well, it's like, all right, let me give you a slightly bigger job. Okay, great. Let me have you, you know, help us out with this. And it's just being able to prove yourself. And it, it's honestly always being able to say yes. Like the example from all the opportunities I had to do dumb stuff on camera, I never wanted to say no. And the only reason I would say no is like, oh, that looks like it'd be stupid. But it's it's just like you should be willing to do whatever's asked of you, obviously within reason, you know. I mean Right. Can you find me 180,000 ballots somewhere in Georgia? No, no, you can't do that sort of thing. Those are not the job. I found them. <laughs> Lauren was hiding them. No. So, you know, don't break any laws, nothing that uh, that is obviously inappropriate. That's not what I'm talking about. But in terms of, of actual work tasks that you're like, it's not in my job description to go pick up this guy's dry cleaning, but I'm going to go pick it up because mm -hmm. it just makes their life easier. And I think just showing yourself as being reliable and intelligent, well, that already crosses off so many other people on the list. Like I just knew from being an intern, you know, there would be like people who were supposed to, this is in New York, you know, they needed to go downtown and get something and do something. And then they came back in because they couldn't find a, a cab. And the intern supervisor was just like, what? what, what do you mean? There's a surprising lack of ability to problem solve, but it's like, honestly, at some level you have to be willing to eat shit. 
and you're just in the middle of it. You're like, this is, this really sucks that I'm doing this right now. Yeah. When I was an intern at Conan O'Brien, I did Max Weinberg's Christmas shopping for him. Max Weinberg is the, uh, he's from the E Street Band. He's one of, he's Bruce Springsteen's drummer. <gasps> Fuck yeah. And he was the band leader on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And there was this list of all these CDs that I had to go and and pick up for him at the Virgin Megastore in Times Square, which is long closed. And, you know, now you could probably get all this stuff more effectively on Amazon. But I mean, I spent hours on it and most of these CDs that he wanted were not there, but I, yeah, I had to go the extra mile and try and find everything. And it was just like, oh, this is really terrible. And it wasn't because I am trying to impress Max. It was more that I wanted my boss to know that I was given this task and I did the best that I could. I came back with something. Yeah. I mean, that's not even the worst example, but that's just one that comes to mind. It's one of those things that's infuriating. You know, it's just like, what, what am I doing? I'm doing his Christmas shopping. Like, th- what does that have to do with, with producing a TV show? And the answer is nothing, you know? And there's much worse things than that, that uh, I've heard of people having to do. You know, I mean, I'm sure you found that along the way, you know, various you know, the the young Lolo as she was starting out. Poor little girl. She had no idea. <laughs> I love, well, I love that. I love that uh, you've posted, I think. I've, I've read this letter you wrote when you were, were like first got to Los Angeles, you know, like trying to get work, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, the things that I went through, really the acting part was the worst part because I wanted it so badly to the point where it was like an abusive relationship and I would have done anything and not like sex stuff, but like, no, but you wouldn't have murdered, but you know, vehicular homicide possible, you know, depends possibly. Yeah. I would have thought about it. It was so sad. Like what I went through with that first agent when she first canceled a meeting with me because there was a goat on her farm that broke a water line. And then she (laughs) left town without telling me and like, (laughs) left the business and I found out from someone else and it was like all par for the course. I went on auditions where I wasn't sure if I was going to get murdered or if I was going to, you know, be up for some weird reality show that I didn't want to be a part of. There were so many different in in that stage of my life. And then in different stages, like different challenges, you know, and I think too, as you get older and you build more clout, you learn how to set boundaries. It is hard with somebody who has thought of you in a certain way to ever shift their opinion. It takes like a strong person to be like, oh, this person was once my assistant and now they're my equal. It sounds like Dennis did that. And I give him a lot of credit because it's not easy as a leader to do that. I'm also curious from your perspective, because I think it's like, pretty easy, at least from my perspective, to write things for myself because I know my own voice. I've lived in my brain all my life. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so I know how to make things sound like me because it's natural. Yeah. When you're writing for another person, you literally have to crawl. Not literally. That was the wrong use of literally. <laughs> Sue me. You know, you have to shrink yourself down, crawl inside their ear and live in there. And then yeah. live in there. So yeah. So you're metaphorically doing that. I think it takes a higher or at least a different level of creativity to do that. And while not everybody is going to be writing for a Dennis Miller or producing like for various people, they have to do some version of that for their job. Maybe they're writing copy for their company or they're writing an email on behalf of their boss. Like what is a shift in creativity and learning someone else's voice? How did you go about doing that? Uh, Writing for Dennis Miller was actually uh, very easy to approach because I was a fan and uh, I had listened to his comedy album many, many times and I'd seen his shows. So getting that sort of rhythm and the sort of way that he tends to structure jokes, what he thinks is funny, I felt like I was able to figure it out uh, fairly well. And, you know, when I was an intern at SNL, I was submitting jokes for Weekend Update, which is the same segment that Dennis had done on there. Uh, And the host at that point was Colin Quinn. 
So it's a very different style, very different delivery. And, you know, over the years, I have been on the list of people who could submit for that segment, but the hosts changed a number of times, you know. So after it was Colin, then it was uh, Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon. So there would definitely be times where I'd be writing a joke for Dennis and just be like, oh, this would be this would be a really good like Seth Meyers joke. You know, you're like, this isn't really a Dennis joke. Mm. But for Dennis's sake, if it's funny, he's got no problem telling the joke. You know, he'll make it work in his own way. These people have their own voice and they know how to, I think, put their own spin on things. You know, I've mostly written for Dennis Miller and uh, I sold one joke to Colin Quinn, but he would read a lot of them. And it is one of those things about show business that's not entirely true is there are people who surprisingly are very encouraging and wanting to help you. And Colin Quinn knew that I was an intern and he'd run into me in the elevator and he would always be like, how are the jokes coming along? You know, this is what we need this week. This was during Monica Lewinsky. So, you know, there were a lot of Monica Lewinsky jokes that, you know, we need more jokes about this and about that. So he was not just encouraging, but he's like, this is what I want you to try to focus on. You know, you're going to get the examples of people who work with someone who's difficult, but the the people who encourage you, it's obviously a lot easier to work for. And, and you're probably more invested in staying up at three in the morning filming something that you don't quite know why you're filming if everybody is kind of, you know, in it together and, you know, people are being treated respectfully, you know? hundred percent. What I kind of got from that is like study the person's voice, know what they need outside of just like what their voice is. And then what's going to ultimately sell your joke or whatever it is that you're trying to put through someone else's lens is your own sensibility. So like finding a way to put your own sensibility through the filter of that person and then the needs for the show or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's that's really what it is. And monologue joke telling is a very specific skill set that honestly there's not that much call for anymore, you know. The the overall number of monologue jokes went down when uh, Jay Leno walked away from late night television. You know, this was just the need for that is, is so much less than it used to be. Someone should just go on a street corner and start saying them. <laughs> You know, something, Christian, you've brought up a couple times, too, is setting expectations. And as a friend, because I just think you're so wildly talented, you're such an incredible broadcaster, you're such a great writer. Sometimes as a friend, I worry about you that you set expectations a little bit too much. Like, I wish sometimes you would, like, I was happy to hear you say you still submit to SNL because I want to see you dream as big as you possibly can. So I wonder, like, where you're at in that journey with I still want to dream and setting expectations and how you kind of balance it. Well, it's a great point, but I would say that I'm at a, I'm at this stage where I don't really know. I mean, look, in less than a month, I'm going to be 45 and that is not necessarily what everybody's looking for. And I think that it's great that you're finding that these shows uh, that are out there are being much more mindful of diversity and gender equality in terms of the hiring. The big problem that I ran into when I was out of college was that no one told me that you needed to go to Harvard if you wanted to write for a late night TV show or Saturday Night Live. Because like you would just see like, oh, like, oh, almost everyone went to Harvard and like, oh, the one guy who didn't, yeah, he went to Duke, you know? So it was just like, oh, okay, I just didn't get it. All right. Nobody told me that I needed to be smart if I wanted to be a comedian. 
And do you think it's as much smart as it's the boys club? I mean, to me, it seems like it's a Harvard boys club and they just keep hiring the same people. Yeah. And it's definitely not that way even. And and I'm talking about like the late nineties when things were definitely better than they had been, you know, in in say the seventies. Like if you read about putting together the original writer's room for Saturday Night Live, when uh, late night with David Letterman started in 1982, you know, there'd be like a woman writer essentially, you know, and then there was definitely more than that, but whatever the reason is, the idea should always be that if you're funny enough, you'll find something. So I'm not really sure. I'm not quite, I'm not quite as sure as to what's next as, as I usually do. The, The thing that helps is that my wife is an incredibly talented TV writer. So no one's looking to me to provide for my family of four because uh, my wife makes so much more money than I do. And that's what I always wanted Mm -hmm. from her. I told her that very early on because she's, she's like a drama TV writer. I love that. That makes me want to cry. Well, I said to her, like, I can't wait till you make more money than me because (laughs) the the potential is so much higher. Just to look up what a, a network script fee is for a producer level writer, you know? And it's just like, Oh, this is insane. You know? So I, haven't given up on anything. And honestly, what I find helps supplement what I was doing is just doing my own shows. And I think we live in a great age where it's, you know, I mentioned I've been doing a podcast for eight years now. We're at 416 episodes of my podcast, Blackcast, you know, so I started doing that. And then during the pandemic, I started doing a lot more on my YouTube channel, which is also called Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And I do keep putting stuff out there. And I don't quite know what the end game is for having a YouTube network that realistically a few hundred people are subscribed to. But to me, I'm like, wait, 300 people watch that? That's crazy. How did 300 people have any interest in anything I've ever said? Well, when you actually think about the 300 individuals, though, it is like, it's amazing. Think about yourself holding court with 300 people. Like, that's a big deal. And yes, they're spread out throughout the country and other countries. But like the fact that three people gave you their time, that means something is resonating. And I think so often we're like, well, but it's it's not a thousand. It's like, yeah, well, if we can't be grateful for the 300, good luck being excited when it gets to the 1000. And I think that that's such an important point because we all lack perspective at some point in our careers, our creative journeys, where we're thinking we don't have enough reach, but we need to look at the reach we actually do have. And the most important thing is, are you enjoying it? And it sounds like you enjoy it immensely. Yeah. I mean, I have fun. I mean, and, and that's really what it comes down to. I mean, the the actual black cast podcast that I do, it's kind of fun in that it's whatever I want. You know, I, I talked to you for a whole show uh, last year and I'll talk to the guys that I usually do it with. I'll do a lot of like musician interviews, just whatever comes along. So like you tune in one week to next, you don't really know what you're going to get. And I think that that actually works against the success of it because it's not consistent. And I think people sort of like consistency. They like, well, we know what we're going to get when we tune into that. But I don't know. I think that it, the eclectic nature helps a little bit. I always use the example that, well, the Blackcast isn't for everyone, but there is an episode that is for everyone. You just would have to find it and you know really sift through the 417 uh, that are out there. And it's fun talking about Marvel movies and comics and TV shows, uh, doing a show for that. And we started a political show during the 2016 campaign, and it's uh, gone through a couple of name changes. It's called 
Biden time now, and uh, we're very proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of you for that. And that's the reason why we settled on that name is because that's usually how people react. And it is mostly fun. You know, I mean, it's, it's the only reason to do it. And the fact that I have people who are willing to give me their time and just chat with me about, you know, largely it's just nonsensical. I mean, you can say that talking about politics is important, but you know, our opinions on politics aren't necessarily that important, you know, because who are we, but we have fun. Well, everyone seems to think that they are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I like that you say that because I feel like the biggest issue right now is like, my opinion is more important than any other opinion. Back off. How dare you? And there's certain instances, yeah, where there's like a black and white, but there's a lot more gray area than our society is currently accounting for. And what I always have loved about you is that you're very fair when you're talking politically. So you still have opinions, but it's not so far out on either side that someone would listen to you and not be able to relate. I think that if you enter a conversation where your goal isn't to try and change anybody's mind, maybe you just like, how about you just think about one thing? What, what do you think about this? Cause you know, some people think that this is what's important and it's not even necessarily what I or you think is important, but uh, well, why is it important to those people? And you go from there. And I think it is very hard to have conversations about stuff like, politics in this day and age because everybody's pretty dug in and I get it that cable news exists the way it does because the segments are like six minutes and for whatever reason they decide to like pack eight people talking at the same time and of course they're going to fight and they're going to argue but for whatever reason people enjoy that I don't enjoy that I would rather the segment be I don't know 18 minutes and you hear a couple minutes from everybody but what do I know well it sounds like you're trying to be a balanced person and not have an anxiety attack because that's what watching that stuff feels like to me is an anxiety attack. Well, yeah. And, and it's like, honestly, a lot of that stuff, it, it's like, it's hard to watch, you know? I mean, it's, uh, when you get your information, it can be very hard to sit through stuff like that, where it's like, well, why is everybody yelling? Should I be yelling about this? I don't know. Approaching it from that way was important to me. And I think to me, it's more listenable, but look, the podcast wasn't a huge success. None of the shows I do are lighting the world on fire. So you know what? Maybe what people need is uh, arguing. I think, Lauren, you and I should probably fight about something and yell for the last few minutes of this. Hey, yeah, get out of here. I can't pick an (laughs) argument with you. I love you. Uh (laughs) No, thin slice pizza is so much better than Chicago deep dish. Yes, yes, we could argue about that. We could. Yeah, (laughs) I know. That's why I picked it. I like deep dish so much. I think like, why would you take a thin slice when you could have a deep dish slice? Because like, what, you want less good things? Well, and here's the thing. I like Chicago deep dish style, but it's not pizza. It's like a tomato cake. It is so dense and it's delicious. But to me, pizza is actually thin and I can fold two of them over and walk down the street holding a paint can like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. But you can't do that with Chicago deep dish. Watch me. (laughs) all right challenge accepted lauren will do that that will be our promo video for this yeah is is lauren just having lou malnati's tomato pie just dripping all over herself because it's like well i said i could walk with it and i'm going to do it yeah by the way the the answer is they both taste good but one of them isn't really pizza yes and this is where we disagree we could go (laughs) into that but i have a couple more questions i want to ask you please so 
you are so supportive of your wife. It's incredible. Your wife, Heather, and she's an, a great person and, and such a talented writer. How is she also supportive of you? Because she is in this, like, as you stated, like more of the breadwinner role right now. But like, how does she make sure that you also have time to empower yourself and like pursue what you love? Well, I think that it comes from some level of respect. I think that she appreciates that whatever it is that I do, I, I guess I do well enough that she understands that, you know, maybe I might go down to the back room in the back of our garage at like, you know, 9 p.m. on a Tuesday to record a show uh, that goes out on the internet. And the idea that well, how many people are even seeing this? Why does it have to be then? Do you think you should be doing less of this stuff? None of that ever really comes up. If I didn't like it, I think then she would be like, well, and why are you doing it? And the answer would be that I shouldn't be, you know? So she's supportive for those things. And she realized, you know, look, I worked mostly part-time with Dennis the last three years, but she knew that that was important to me, that I was able to have that opportunity, that I was able to do that. She knew that that was something that I was good at. And I think she realizes that the value in having that and especially in a time like this where now I'm not working. I don't have a day job. Talking to you right now, this is my day job. So We're working, honey. Yes, we are. Well, you are. <laughs> uh, but I'm just having fun chatting with a pal. So I'm the lucky one. But she uh, always understands that in no way does she demean what I do. And every once in a while, we'll have the conversation about like, what do I want next? And it's always like, well, here's what I want. I don't know how to get what I want. But here's how to try to get maybe steps between what I want and where I am now. And, you know, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, when you're a TV writer, you my wife had like a full calendar year where she didn't work, you know. So right. you have to be very encouraging the other way that it's like, no, it's not that you're not good. It's just you haven't had the right opportunity. And getting the next job can be very hard in, well, in any line of work, but especially in entertainment. So I think the fact that she's been there she understands that that feeling of like, oh, I don't know. Am I good at this? Why don't I have that job? You know, so I think the the respect and support being a two way street is probably the the reason it's able to succeed. Yeah. And I think that's such a great pitch for why sometimes when when both artists are mentally balanced enough to have great logical conversations and mentally unbalanced enough to still be creative and amazing. But I think it's a great pitch for why it can really work when it's like two artists coming together. Sure. And then you're just an amazing dad as well. You've got two beautiful children, Lucy and Felix. And so I'm wondering how, like, how is raising them increase your creativity or like, how do you approach raising them in a creative way? Well, I think you think of the world differently for sure, you know, when you have kids and just some of the insights they have and just things that like my son for the last like year and a half or so has been really into maps and other countries. And just, unfortunately, he wants to go to all these places. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, this has been the year where you can't go anywhere. Like, we can't even go to Las Vegas, you know? So I don't know how we're uh, going to be able to go to Indonesia, but I'm so excited that you want to go, you know? <laughs> so the stuff that they bring up, it's like, oh yeah, I just, I hadn't thought about it. So it's just, you know, there've definitely been moments where you're thinking of things, you're improvising off the cuff, you know, doing a podcast or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I only think of this because my kid mentioned this country that maybe I don't think of. So it, it bleeds over into whatever your creative avenues are. And I don't know. I mean, I think that the things that they think are funny and are silly probably come from just 
you know, who I am. And I'm all I remember from my dad are dad jokes. My, my dad, God love him. He's like one of the least funny people on the planet. You know, it's funny because people always talk about like, oh, yeah, growing up, my dad was uh, always quick with a joke. And that was true. But they were never, ever funny. A thousand percent of the time they were awful. So it was almost like, oh, it had the reverse. It like set the bar of like, OK, I need to be funnier than my dad. And I think, I don't know, I think that both Felix and Lucy can be very silly and they will make jokes, you know, stuff that's like, well, how about we do this? And they'll say something and they're just like, wouldn't it be funny if, and for Felix, it's like 80% poo-poo humor, but look, there's a place for that. A hundred percent. Oh, there's a place for for that in my heart for sure. (laughs) And then final question. It's a two-parter. So I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child, which is, you know, why I think it's cool that you get to raise kids because you kind of get to relive that. Yeah. But I'm wondering if you and a younger version of yourself were standing in the same room and looking at each other, what do you think he would say to you and why? I think the first thing little me would say is, has anybody ever told you that you look like Nathan Lane? And I would be like, yes, all the time. (laughs) For God's sakes, little me. Uh, I think little me would ask, are you having fun? Because, you know, growing up and look, I grew up in, in New York state. I didn't grow up in the city. I didn't grow up far from the city, but it wasn't like, you know, people around us, people that I knew their parents didn't do stuff that they loved. Their parents just had jobs. You know, the most creative things would be like people who like took photos for the local newspaper, but that probably wasn't even their full-time job. You know what I mean? So it was like, you don't even really think about it that way. So people probably didn't seem happy. So the idea that he could grow up and be happy working would be great. And the idea of like, well, you know, TV is pretty awesome, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People actually work on those shows that you like. So I think that knowing that whatever the capacity was that I've been involved in it, I think little me would be excited for middle school age me to be told that I interned at Saturday Night Live, that I had a joke on Saturday Night Live, that I worked with Dennis Miller would be like, oh, great. Well, clearly you're going to be a billionaire. And I'm like, yeah, that's true too. So don't be disappointed if it doesn't happen, little me. But uh, <laughs> And what would you say to him and why? I think I would tell little me that everything's going to be okay. It just won't seem like it at the time. And, you know, look, my parents got divorced when I was older. Uh, so I had a, I had a good run and uh, plenty of people didn't people that I knew, you know, I mean, my parents, honestly, right about the time I'm talking about earlier, when I started working on the Dennis Miller show on CNBC, that's when my parents got divorced. So I was 28, you know, my sister had graduated college. So I had childhood and started adulthood. So, you know, I, I feel like kids who have that happen when they're aware of it and they're still little, that could be very upsetting. So I think that we always grew up with the idea that things were going to be okay. We didn't have a lot of money, but my mom was always very creative on handling the finances. You know, she knew how to make it work. And by the way, she always figured out how the budget included a subscription to TV guide because she needed to know what was going to be on. And uh, she found that 60 cents a week or whatever it costs to make sure that we got it. That was what was important to her. She found the way. So it's like, well, I guess, uh, I guess store brand Cheerios it is so that we can get TV guide. So, I would tell the younger version of me, don't give up. And there's going to be times where you're going to think that you should probably give up. And you might have people in your life who are saying, why are you still doing this? And it's always worth sticking with it 
as long as you can. And look, when I was a page at NBC, we were all, almost all of us were in our early twenties. And I had people that I got to know really well who spent a year in New York. And then at the end of that year, what they realized is, yeah, I'm going to move back to Florida. Uh, working in TV was actually not what I wanted. It, it's just, I don't want it enough. It's not really my thing. And other people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be at this level. People went on to be like local news anchors in places like Texas or uh, Massachusetts, you know? So it's just sort of figuring out what it is you want. And people just gave up on show business entirely because they just didn't love it. And I'm like, yeah, if you don't love it, you shouldn't do it because it can be a decent way to make money, but it's not really the best course of action. You know, if you're just there for the paycheck, you shouldn't really be there. Oh, no. There's so many easier ways to make money than that. Yeah. You have to do it because your heart is fully in it. Yeah. And and so your heart has to be in it. But if if your heart is still in it, then don't give up. If your heart's not in it, you, should, you shouldn't do it for one second longer than you need to. But it, it's very important, I think, that a younger version of me could have known that it's going to be all right, that it is going to be fun, and it will everything will be all right in the end, as they say. You just have to get to that point, and you have to wait through a lot of it on the professional level, on the personal level. You know, when you end up with someone who ends up being the right person, you know, I mean, I, I met, also met my wife when I was like 28. It's around the same time period. All these things happened. And it was not the point where I'm like, oh, I'm going to, you know, keep my eyes open looking for a new intern who starts on the show who is 21. I love her. That's probably going to be my wife. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was it was just like, it was just somebody that you sat next to at a desk and you made small talk with and you like laughed about the, you know, in touch in People magazine, you know? So on the personal level and the professional level, you don't always know what it is that you're going to want. And when that thing comes along, you should just be open to it. You know, I mean, maybe if I'd worked on a judge show like judge Judy, that was a hugely successful show. I would have been like, man, working on judge shows is great. You know, but instead I worked on Curtis court and uh, you, no one's ever heard of it. No, but it sounds like fun. <laughs> I, I learned a couple things from that one. N most of them aren't really judges. They're just lawyers Two. When you bring your your squabble on the air, you know, like if if I'm suing you because you know we were roommates and uh, and and I I left town and uh, didn't pay your half of the rent, whatever the judge decides, the show pays for. So they take small. That's why it's only small claims courts because they're only going to pay up to about five thousand dollars. So the shows pay. So that's why the that's why the people who are having these small claims will go on television because they're like oh, I don't have to pay this money that I know that I actually owe this person. Great. I don't care what happens. Judge Judy can be very mean to me. It doesn't matter. That's a great scam. Yeah, it's a great scam. And look, if you're the other person, you're like, I know this deadbeat is never going to pay me. So Judge Judy's going to write a check. That's going to be great. This might be the best takeaway of the episode. Folks, if you have a small claim, please consider <laughs> Curtis Court. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if Curtis remembers that he had a court show, but. Uh, oh God, we should give him a call. After I'm done with Lauren today, I'm going to call Curtis. and yeah, just. You know what? I'm going to have you handle all of my, all of my career decision-making going forward. Perfect. Uh, I'm going to wear a bracelet. W-W-L-L-D. What would Lolo do? <laughs> and, uh, and then I'll also ask you what, what, uh, if you could make calls for me. Only if you call me on your razor phone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, yeah, you know what? I had a lot of flip phones, but uh, somebody destroyed them for a video shoot. Yeah. One of the kindest things Christian ever did for me is sacrifice all of his old technology so that I could use it in my first music video. And I painted it blue. And so it was like destroyed. Like you couldn't even keep it in a bag for safe keepings or like, you know, posterity anymore. But that was just so kind because I was trying to buy ones from eBay and they never ended up coming in. Yeah, well, I saw that post and I knew I had this box of old cell phones and I'm like, well, what am I saving it for if it's not this to like help a friend who would have to spend money and get old cell phones. And so I saved my original cell phone from 2000, my StarTech flip phone that had the little belt holster and legitimately pulled the antenna out so that it would work better. But the rest of them, I'm like, just do whatever you want. I, in fact, I don't want them back. So, Oh my gosh. You gave me like the greatest gift of my life though, because I always wanted a Razor flip phone, a pink oh, yeah. Razor flip phone. And I was never cool enough to have one. And then suddenly bestowed upon me, it was like 15 years from when those things first emerged, my dream came true. So like to bring it all back to manifestation. Yes, I do believe. <laughs> you can thank my wife because she was cool enough to have a, a pink razor phone. And so that's why you got to have it for even a moment. Oh, shout out to Heather. Shout out to Christian. I love you. Thank you for coming on the show and for all you shared. Well, thank you. Uh, I love me too, but uh, I do also love you. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my friend, Christian Blatt. For more info on Christian, follow him at Christian DMZ on Instagram and check out his podcast, The Black Cast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. I've been a guest on a couple episodes. It's so much fun. He's an incredible broadcaster. You're going to love it. Thank you so much to Unleash Associate Producer Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. I also want to remind you that I'm doing a show at Bar Lubitsch next week. That is Tuesday, June 29th at 8.30 p.m. Bar Lubitsch is in West Hollywood. Come on down. It's going to be a blast. It's my first show of 2021. I'm going to be playing all new music. I can't wait to share it with you and to meet you. My wish for you this week is you take a look at everything you do and ask yourself if you're having fun. Because at the end of the day, if we can't enjoy the fruits of our labor, what's the point? There is none. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you soon.